Welcome to our Glendale Baptist Church Bible study. We are continuing our studies in the book of Revelation, and today we'll begin in chapter 21. I'll read verses 1 through 8, and although in this particular session we probably won't cover all of those verses, but at least this is the first part uh, of the chapter, verses 1 through 8, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the, from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his, this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, one of the things that uh, certainly seems to carry over from things that we've discussed before is why it's so important not to try to follow a particular linear chronology. Because as you see, at the end of chapter 20, that was the destruction of all of the wicked. Uh, they were thrown into the lake of fire. But yet here in verse 8, uh, it seems as if the judgment of the wicked are future. Because the Lord says that um, in, in speaking of his separate, distinguishing his people from the unregenerate, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be, future tense, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So it seems as if um, the way verse 8 reads, as if their condemnation is future. But if we follow the chronology from chapter 20, it speaks of them already receiving their judgment. And I mention that because there are going to be a number of themes that are reiterated over and over again, even in this brief section. So what I want to do is just unpack uh, the main thoughts that are presented here. Now, uh, if we begin with the premise that chapter 20, at the end of chapter 20, and the condemnation and the final judgment of the wicked has already been established, then what we're looking at is the future for the people of God. 
So therefore, in verse 1, it opens with John saying that, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he gives the reason for it. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So this reference to a new earth and or new heaven and a new earth, which opens uh, gets, opens this, this section, calls to mind um, or corresponds to chapter 20 in verse 11 where we are told that uh, the presence of the one who sits on the throne causes the earth and the sky to flee. It is also uh, part of the uh, overall teaching throughout the book of Revelation, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. So uh, the point here is the fact that the fact of human sin has cosmic consequences throughout the whole created order. Uh, in Revelation or in Romans chapter 8 verses 19 through 22, and I'll read it again. I know we've referenced it before, but that's just a fact. It doesn't mean that everything in the created order is sinful. Obviously, inanimate objects don't sin. Uh, but everything as we see it in the created order is the result. It's, it's in disarray because of the fact of sin. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, uh, Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know not, uh, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And the implication being is the consequence, one of the consequences of sin, and it's captured for us very powerfully and well as poetically in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is subject to futility. And so within the created order, there are what we call natural disasters and disorders that are themselves the consequence of human sin because God uses the whole created order to manifest his wrath and his coming judgment of sin. So therefore, as we've mentioned before, the very fact of earthquakes, the very fact of volcanoes, the very fact of, of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis, all of these are not for particular sins that, that people do, but because of the fact of sin in general. So reference here to a new heaven and a new earth refers to the end of God's wrath being displayed within the created order and the renewal of the entire cosmos, the renewal of the earth um, in, in, in preparation for the renewed people of God. So this whole idea of I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven uh, because the old earth and the old earth has passed away 
presupposes that the final judgment of God against all sin and therefore a resetting of the created order has already taken place. And so that's why I mentioned in the beginning that although verse 8 speaks as if the judgment is yet to come on those people that are categorized in, in verse 8, in actuality, it's already come. And it's for this reason that John sees the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, the second thing to note is John says, then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And this is an interesting phrase because when we think of new earth and new, new heavens, new earth, that means the whole created order, a renewed creation. And then if, if, if all of that which defiles is removed, then that means the whole creation itself is the new Jerusalem. That means it becomes the, the dwelling place of God with man on earth in a renewed earth. It, it incorporates the whole thing. But what John says he sees is a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the holy city. And this new Jerusalem, it's, it's kind of, you, you thinking, you're thinking now of a city coming down into the created order. But then you notice the way what he does is instead of describing the city, and we'll come back to this later in the second portion uh, of, of, this, um, of, of this section, especially in verses nine and following, but he says, I saw a new, new city, but then he speaks of it in human terms. So it's, it's similar to what we see in chapter five. In chapter five, when John is concerned or he weeps uh, because no one was found worthy to open the seals on the scroll, uh, he is told not to worry because the lion who is the from uh, the tribe uh, who is from the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the the seals. And so John turns around and he's looking for this lion from the tribe of Judah, and what he sees is a lamb that had been slain. So he is prepared for a lion, and what he sees is a lamb. Here, John sees a holy city coming down out of heaven from God, but it becomes clear that what he's actually describing, rather than a city, what he's describing is a people. He's describing, and in fact, even when he says, um, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, even the description that he uses there, as a bride who is adorned for her husband. Now he will describe in physical uh, geographic terms, parts of this whole, this new Jerusalem later. But here, he the emphasis is not so much on the city, but on a people. Um, in fact, not just a people, but one of the things that God uh, emphasizes to John is that his dwelling place, he dwells with people. Uh, the people are his dwelling and they dwell with him. So having established in verse one, in a sense, a purging of the cosmos. And by the way, in verse one, where he says a new heaven and a new earth, and then he also says the sea is no more. 
And it's not just referring to water, but as we pointed out elsewhere in the book of Revelation, uh, sea is used poetically and symbolically for um, unrest, chaos. Uh, and so what John sees, because all evil has been purged, a la chapter 20, John sees the absence of chaos. And so the new heavens and the new earth and the sea was no more doesn't indicate the absence of water, but the absence of chaos and tension within the created order. There's no more disturbances within the creation. So, and because the reason it's no more chaos is because the created order has been purified. And basically what we see in verse one, therefore, is a purged creation or cosmos. And then in verse two, the shift is from a purged creation and cosmos to a purged and purified people. And it's for this reason, the people who will occupy this new earth, they are called the people of God. And just as the earth has been purged, they also uh, are purged of everything that defiles. Now, Notice again, it refers to um, the people of God as being adorned as a bride for her husband. And this obviously mirrors um, this, this whole idea of a new creation. It mirrors, in a sense, the narrative of when God creates the heavens and the earth, and then when he creates Adam and Eve. Uh, I remember years ago, Robert Godfrey uh, preaching, I think it was, it may have even been here for a church anniversary. And in referencing uh, Genesis, the creation account, he says, God creates a place and then he creates a people for that place. And he creates, uh, uh, he gives them a purpose. So God's purpose for his people is in that place. And so here he purifies the place. And then he now calls the people into that place. And so the description, it, it mirrors the original creation that God creates the heavens and the earth. And then he created man on the sixth day of his creation. So now having purged with a new heaven and a new earth and no sea or cause of chaos, now we see his people who are presented as a as, a, as a, a, a bride who is adorned for her husband. So again, uh, in following that creative narrative, when God, God has created a world that is good, and then he places man in the place that he has created, and he creates man whom he describes as being very good. But something else that's mirrored here is the idea that this, this purified people in this place, it really is, it, it, that's the theme of redemptive history. Uh, God, God's people at a particular place, and it, we see it throughout uh, the scriptures, even before the Lord, uh, before the Exodus in the book of Exodus, uh, first Moses calls, goes to Pharaoh, that his people, God says, release my people so they can worship me in a particular place. And then he brings them out of, of bondage from the household of Egypt. 
And so this is a major theme throughout redemptive history, this dual theme of people and place. And the sins of the people are also said to corrupt the place. This is true of, of the holy things. This is true of even when the children of Israel come into the promised land, that the sins of the people has really contaminated the whole place. Uh, the sins of the people contaminates the holy place or the holy tabernacle and temple uh, eventually when they come into the promised land. So this is a major theme and it goes hand in hand. People or place and people. If the people, the place is pure, but the sins of the people have contaminated it. When God brings ultimate redemption, he purifies both the place and the people and he reconnects us in a redemptive way. And in a sense, that is really the goal of, of redemptive history. And, and by the way, I think that's one of the reasons we can't lose the transcendence of Christian worship. Because what God is doing is calling us into sacred assembly as before he disperses us back into a world that is contaminated. So when we are gathered in his presence, it's a reminder that his name is upon us, his, the blood of his son purifies us. And so we, it's, it's a transcendent experience. It's not like anything else within the created order until the day of redemption. And when the Lord returns, then we don't have to gather just in one particular place because the whole earth will be full of his glory. Uh, but here, what we see is the new heavens and the new earth corresponding to the purified people. And that's a wonderful um, dualism that we see here. Uh, and that is, uh, like I said, the end or the, the purpose of redemptive history. Here's another thing that we see, and that is the description of the purified people of God as a bride adorned, a bride adorned for her husband. The bridal theme will be enlarged upon, especially in verses 9 and following, but it's interesting that uh, in verse 2, it describes the holy city coming down out of heaven as a bride that is adorned. Whereas in verse 9, uh, John is told that I will show you um, the, the bride, the bride of the groom. And then what the angel goes on to describe or what John goes on to see is the city. So in verse 2, he's told of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, but really what's described is the relationship between God and his redeemed people. In verse 9, he said, I will show you the bride. And really what's described is a geographic place and the structures within that place. But the idea itself of the people of God being equated with the bride is not new. Suffice it to say for now that uh, human matrimony has long been used in an analogous way to describe God's redemptive love towards his people. We see it in the Old Testament uh, where the Lord, uh, when, he, when he brings condemnation or judgment on his people because of their idolatry, and idolatry throughout the history of Old Testament or national Israel it's equivalent to adultery. 
We see it more clearly and vividly in uh, the life of the prophet Hosea. And the Lord identifies Hosea's wife, who is a, pro a prostitute. He identifies them as being his own bride. And it's a reminder that his bride, who are betrothed to him, have acted in an unfaithful way. We see it also in Ezekiel and other places. But the point is, God throughout the Old Testament uses the language and the, the dynamics of human matrimony to describe his relationship with his people. But we see it in a particular way in the New Testament, and especially in the writings of Paul, that the people of God are identified not just as the bride of God himself, God the Father, but particularly the bride of Christ. And that is one of the underlying themes that we see throughout the book of Revelation, the bride of the Lamb. But let's look in particular at Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll look in verses 22 through 33, because that's the place that's most common and most familiar where Paul uses the analogy of human marriage or matrimony to describe the intimate relationship between Christ and the church. And this is not only a place where he gives a charge uh, to husbands and wives, Christian husbands and wives as to how we are to view our relationship and our roles within that marriage relationship. But it's interesting how he goes back and forth between uh, the human marriage and the relationship between Christ and the church. So beginning in verse 22, Paul says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, uh, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present, and you see at this point what John, what Paul has done is he's really shifted from the relationship of human husbands and wives, and he's really speaking of the lordship of Christ over his church. At this point, he's he's gone. This is almost a parenthetical statement where he's no longer, and he'll come back to it in a moment. He says that he might sanctify her for himself, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother because and, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself 
and let the wife see that she respects her own husband. So what Paul is doing is using the language as he gathers it, even from Genesis, where, where after the creation of Eve, and he uses the language and the relationship of human marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. And this is what we have been prepared for throughout the, the book of Revelation of Christ and his church, the intimate bond between Christ and his church. You remember earlier, it speaks in, in chapter 19 about come to the wedding feast of the bride. Well, now we have that moment upon us where Christ now sees the church as his bride. And what John sees is the heavens and earth have, have it's, it's a new heaven and a new earth because the old earth and the old heaven has been purged. And then he sees coming down out of heaven the new Jerusalem, which is adorned as a bride for her bridegroom. And if we may continue to build on that analogy of a husband and a bride, just picture this where a husband who is about to get married has bought a new home for his bride. And then he's ready to bring her into the home and take her over the threshold. And what John sees is before he sees the bride, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And consider this new heaven and this new earth, this purified cosmic creation. Consider it the groom's gift of a home for his bride. And this is what he's going to bring her into. And so once the chaos is removed, once the heavens and the earth are, are renewed, everything that defiles it has been removed, then what John sees coming down out of the heaven is the bride of the Lamb. And what's being reaffirmed is that these are my people. And the dwelling place of God is with his people. And so he now sees a bride being ready to be presented with her new home. It is so important for us as we walk our way through the book of Revelation to remember that heaven is not a cloudy existence. It's not us moving from clouds and playing on harps. Heaven is a renewed earth and the unbroken fellowship between God and his people. And here's the beautiful part of this. Everything that has contaminated has been removed. Remember when Jesus says, behold, I'm going away to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you will be also. He's not just talking about in the by and by. When he comes, he is presenting to his bride a dwelling place where she'll be able to dwell forever. I think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, the meek shall not earn, shall not buy, shall not build, but the meek shall inherit the earth. And what John sees in this first part of these closing scenes in the book of Revelation in chapter 1 he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and he sees a new people that are now prepared to occupy that new place because this is the bride 
And this is the place that the groom has prepared for the bride. I'm going to close there and we'll pick up something else uh, in, in other portions of this first section of what John sees concerning the consummation of all things redemptively for the people of God. But we'll close here and pick up on, on the rest of it, the description, a further description of God's intimate relations with his people, his redeemed people. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word and the reminders of your sufficient grace for your people. As we work through the text of your scriptures, and then we work through the days in which you have called us, we are reminded that your word is faithful. Thank you for giving us context for your great promises, the challenges and the struggles that we experience. But thank you for the reassurances of your favor and your grace towards your people and reminding us that those who are in Christ cannot be removed from him. So we pray that as we see these closing scenes in the book of Revelation concerning the consummation of your redeeming love towards your people, that it would encourage us in our present moment. Whatever the things that are going on around us, comfort your people. Strengthen us that we would know who we are and whose we are, and we would not be confused by the things that are going on within the broad, broader culture, but rather we would be able to be bright and shining lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We do thank you for your tender mercies in Christ. Grant us a firmer grasp of him and a firmer and a, and a clearer glimpse of his sufficient grace for us in our present moment as we serve you for your glory. Thank you again for your word, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, here is uh, a word of update, or I should say an update. As you know, uh, restrictions that we've been under for the last year and a half have been are being gradually removed in relation to COVID. And so we are uh, trying to respond in a likewise manner for our, our activities here at the church. Uh, in that vein, next week, which will be the 9th of June, we will be meeting live for our Bible study. We'll meet in the sanctuary at uh, 7 o'clock, our regular Bible study time on Wednesday evening, June 9th, 2021. Now, for those who are not able or not ready yet to, to come out, or those of us, those of you who have been just following us online, uh, we will stream and we will continue to do so uh, for the foreseeable future. But for those who are interested and who would like to join us live, we will pick up our regular Bible study, in-person Bible study on June 9th uh, in our main sanctuary. So we look forward to being with you then. 